0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The Fed says along with lower inflation will come more than a million Americans losing their jobs. The lead starts right now. The cost to borrow up again. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates for a seventh time this year alone, but this go-around easing its pace. The big questions, can the U.S. economy avoid a recession? As the Fed expresses new unemployment fears. And Ukraine on defense, claiming to shoot down a series of drones that took aim at its infrastructure. Plus cracking down on TikTok. The powerful voices pushing to restrict, if not force you, to delete the app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with our money lead and a sign of optimism about the economy this afternoon from the Federal Reserve. The Fed just raised interest rates another half a percentage point, which in normal times could be alarming. But today's announcement is lower than the record setting rate heights we've seen play out multiple times this year signaling that the Federal Reserve seems to think inflation is generally heading in the right direction, going down. But the Fed is also predicting a rise in unemployment next year, meaning more than a million Americans would lose their jobs. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell is predicting a long road to recovery ahead.
2: It's good to see progress, but let's just understand we have a long ways to go to get back to price stability.
1: Let's get straight to CNN's Matt Egan at the Federal Reserve. CNN's Phil Mattingly is at the White House as well. Matt, walk us through the big takeaways from the Fed announcement today.
3: Well, Jake, the Fed is still pumping this economy with tough medicine. It's just lowering the dosage a bit. It's going from 75 basis points the last four meetings to an interest rate increase of 50 basis points. And, you know, that is an acknowledgement in some ways that the Fed thinks that it's tough medicine is working, that inflation is cooling off. But the Fed is also making clear that their job is not nearly done yet. The Fed's statement said inflation remains, quote, Elevated Fed Chair Jay Powell said that more is going to be needed in terms of cooling inflation before they have confidence that inflation really is on a downward trend. And listen, I think that makes sense. Seven percent inflation is better than nine percent inflation that we saw earlier this year, but it is still seven percent inflation. That's still triple the Fed's goal here. No victory laps at the Fed, and so that does mean that. Interest rates are probably going to be going higher. The Fed is penciling in another 75 basis points of rate increases next year. That means higher borrowing costs for everyone, mortgage rates, credit cards, car loans. And it also means the Fed is going to continue to put downward pressure on this economy. Jake, the question remains, will they stop raising interest rates before they cause a recession?
1: And Phil, you have some new reporting about the feeling inside the White House as they watch this new economic economic data coming in.
4: Yeah, Jake, White House officials will take great pains not to weigh in on any Federal Reserve policy decision. But this day really marked the capping of really two weeks of economic data that underscored that what White House officials have really been aiming for over the better part of the last seven or eight months is finally coming to fruition to some degree. And that may lead to a very real possibility of that idea of a soft landing in the future. Now, keep in mind, there has been the kind of resilience on the economic front for the better part of that period of time. White House officials constantly talk about job creation and where jobs numbers continue to land wages and how consumers are continuing to operate the piece of it they did not have was clear deceleration on the inflation front. That has consistently shown to be occurring over the course of the last several weeks. The Fed's action today, while White House officials won't speak on it specifically, certainly reflects that as well. There is a long road ahead, but the idea that they could finally thread the needle or figure out a way to thread the needle to maintaining some type of strength in the economy while not, uh, while also rating in inflation is more real now than I think it ever has been before for White House officials.
1: Except, Matt, the Federal Reserve is also predicting more than a million jobs Job losses in 2023.
3: Explain that. That's right, Jake. Uh, the Fed darkened their economic projections for next year across the board. They now see near zero GDP growth. They bumped up their inflation forecast and they now see the unemployment rate going from an historically low level today of 3.7 percent to 4.6 percent next year. That is not high overall, but it does translate to the loss of roughly 1.6 million jobs. That is another reminder of the pain here being caused by not just high inflation, but the fed's war on high inflation. Now, Jay Powell says that he doesn't think that this new forecast suggests a recession because they are still calling for positive growth. But Powell also conceded that no one knows for sure whether the economy is going to avoid going into recession. And if it does go into recession, whether or not it would be a deep one or a mild one.
1: Jake? All right, Matt Egan and Phil Mattingly, thanks. Let's bring in Brian Dees. He's the director of President Biden's National Economic Council. Brian, good to see you. You heard the Fed chair talking about unemployment today. Right now it's at 3.7 percent. The Fed is now predicting 4.6 percent, higher than earlier predictions. And obviously that means more than a million Americans will lose their jobs if that prediction comes true. Do you agree with that assessment?
2: Well, I think to assess where we are and where we're going, we got to look at where we've come. And over the course of the last six months, there's been a lot of projections about where we might go. But what we've seen is a continued resilience in the American economy, consistent growth, job growth that is slowing and cooling, but continuing to move forward, businesses continuing to invest in the United States, and importantly, inflation coming down and coming down in ways that People can actually feel um, and, and see in their lives, goods, household goods, toys, things like that at the holiday season, prices actually coming down. The price of gas at the pump, obviously something that you and I have spent uh, time talking about over the course of the year, now down almost a dollar seventy since this summer. That's about 200 bucks in savings a month for a typical family. That's savings that can translate into trying to cover other expenses. And so I think at the end of all of that, what you say is over the last several months, what we're seeing is that we are making progress going in the right direction. And the economic plan the president has put into place and has worked deliberately over the course of the, next couple of, uh, the last couple of years mm-hmm. is working. Now we have to stay at it. And as uh, as the president said yesterday, uh, we still have distance to travel. There are still risks, but it's working. And Even as we face these near-term challenges, we're also seeing businesses invest in the United States at record rates in areas from semiconductors to clean energy. That's the kind of thing that can keep this momentum going, even as we navigate through this transition.
1: Yeah, so I didn't hear an answer to the question, do you think uh, that the Fed is correct as they predict more than a million American job losses next year? Do you you think that's right?
2: Well, what we have said consistently as we looked at the labor market is that we do expect a cooling in the labor market. The president said that several months ago. We've seen that cooling down from about 600,000 jobs added every month to, uh, to closer to 200,000 jobs. But I also think that uh, everyone has to come and look at projections in this labor market with humility. This labor market that we're living through doesn't bear resemblance to uh, prior Uh, prior recessions, in part because of the way that the pandemic affected things. We still have 10 million job openings in the United States, and most economists believe you'll see some cooling on that front. And so what you could see is cooling in the labor market without the kind of traditional pain uh, that you've seen in, uh, in, in, in prior downturns. That's something that we have been watching closely. That's something we've seen sustain across the course of time. Certainly, that's what we want to see going forward as well. And we continue to believe uh, that that's possible. And one, one of the things that will make a difference, one of the things that will matter on that front is whether we can continue progress on the kind of policies that will keep business investing, keep business investing here in the United States, creating jobs here in the United States as well. President Biden was asked yesterday when he expects prices to return to normal. He said, quote,
1: I hope by the end of next year we'll be much closer. That's not, of course, saying by the end of next year we'll be back to normal. Uh, am I right in assuming the White House is not expecting prices back to normal in 12 months? And when do
2: you think they will be back to normal? Well, I think, you know, just to pick up on what the president said, we have a ways to go. We still have a ways to go. And inflation is too high, unacceptably high right now. Uh, and so that is going to take uh, the course of time uh, for that to uh, that to work through the system. I think that, that but it is a, a very important question whether we're moving in the right direction. And whether we're seeing prices come down and then calibrating or inflation come down and the the pace at which it's coming down. And so some of these things you can look forward and see, for example, in the housing market, we know one of the big drivers of price increases. The data that we're seeing now reflects circumstances several months ago in the housing market because of the way that the data is measured. So we know that over the course of the next six to 12 months, we'll see some of the pricing, you know, the price declines in housing and, and new rents that we're seeing in the market today reflected Uh, in that data. So we certainly expect to see that, we hope to see that um, normalization over the course of uh, time. And of course, for people out there, a lot of this data can feel uh, very abstract, but in concrete terms, the price of things that matter, like the price of gas or food at the grocery store, those are things that we can see and feel in more real-time terms. You know, price of gas, good example, we're now lower today than we were a year ago, uh, and we're we're approaching three dollars a gallon. So that's the kind of normalization that we want to see and the kind that we do expect to see over the course of the next several months.
1: But food inflation remains obscenely high, 10 percent, right?
2: Well, uh, food inflation has been way way too high over the course of the year. Over the last couple of months, we have started to make progress. We need to see more uh, reduction in the uh, the cost of food at the grocery store. Uh, But we've seen significant cooling in the rate of increase uh, in in food inflation over the last couple of months compared to prior Mm -hmm. months as well. So that is a place where some of that is working through some of the supply chain uh, bottlenecks that affect food as it moves through Uh, Moves through the system. Uh, We need to make sure that we're doing everything we can on things like fertilizers and others to make sure we have uh, a good growing season uh, next year. So (laughs) we've got to make more progress on that front. But again, it is a positive sign that we're seeing a deceleration, uh, even in food, where prices remain too high. Brian Deese, thanks for your time. appreciate it. Coming up next, what new court documents reveal about
1: subpoenas from the January 6th committee as the panel prepares for its final report? We're going to talk to a member of the committee plus the elevated threat for severe weather just one day after destructive deadly tornadoes and the strong words on Capitol Hill from survivors of the Club Q massacre, whom they blame for the attack inside the LGBTQ nightclub. Stay with us. And we are back with our politics lead as the January 6th committee winds down its work. It is abandoning efforts to subpoena phone records from some of Donald Trump's top allies, as CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now. That includes Former White House aide Stephen Miller, conservative activist Roger Stone, and some of the January 6th rioters.
5: The House committee investigating January 6th, dropping its pursuit of phone records for several Donald Trump allies as the committee winds down its work. This is crunch time
6: for the committee.
5: The lawmakers are abandoning subpoenas related to phone records for Trump allies who contested them in court, including advisor Sebastian Gorka, Roger Stone, and White House aide Stephen Miller, among others, according to court records.
7: Everything to do with my phone and all phones associated with it on the account, includes my wife, my children, must be data dumped to the January 6th Witch Hunt Committee
5: leaving the committee to wrap up its work without some of the information it had been fighting for in court. After more than a year of investigating, roughly a thousand witness interviews, and a fruitless subpoena to the former president... We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. The January 6th panel is set to hold its final public meeting December 19th and release its final report two days later.
8: The report uh, will, will be for both the present and for the future, uh, so people understood and understand exactly what we learned, the role people played, um, a lot of the granular detail and evidence that we uncovered.
5: At the meeting, lawmakers are expected to unveil five or six buckets of referrals, including referrals to the Justice Department for potential criminal prosecution, referrals for possible state bar discipline, referrals for potential campaign finance violations, and referrals for the House Ethics Committee.
9: We are very concerned that members of Congress that we issued subpoenas to, because they have relevant information, refused to comply, and that's a legal obligation. So we're going
4: to be addressing that on Monday.
5: While the committee winds down, the special counsel's probe into January six and efforts to overturn the 2020 election is expanding. After previously seeking information from fake electors across seven battleground states, Trump contested...
10: All 16 electors have been advised by the governor's staff that we're going to be here to vote in electoral college. we have been checked in, we are already here. But, the GOP but these, electors are, these the are the I'm rest sorry. of the electors. I understand.
5: Prosecutors are now seeking information from local officials in those same swing states, Nevada, New Mexico, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Now we have heard a lot, Jake, about the feds looking into the fake elector scheme, but this new round of subpoenas to state and local officials in this battleground state gives you an indication that they want to know more about contacts that Donald Trump, the Trump campaign, a number of his allies had with these officials in their efforts to try to overturn the results of the 2020 elections.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, a member of the January 6th Select House Committee. Congressman, are you confident that your committee will present a full and complete report, even without some of the phone records you went to court to try to get?
11: Yeah, I'm confident. I think, um, look, we presented, I think, a very compelling story over the summer, which is, you know, hey, it's not just the day of January 6th that mattered. What mattered is what led to it and frankly the fact that not much has really changed since and so we've told that story it will go into some more detail certainly i wish we could have gotten you know the phone records we requested could have had more of the people we asked to come in but i think we're going to have a very fulsome story to tell with recommendations which is our job and now really the torch uh, to an extent, is passed to the Justice Department, as it appears they're investigating as well.
1: And you're going to be presenting the case for criminal referrals during the hearing on Monday, but the Justice Department has to decide whether to act on those referrals. If they decide to not prosecute, will this all have been a waste?
11: No, I don't think so, because... The information, the who is responsible, that's very important, right? The showing the American people the the true nature of what happened, that's very important. Where I think this work is going to actually echo the loudest, though, is not even necessarily tomorrow, not even if the Justice Department does. It's going to echo through the history books. It's going to be something that in 10 or 20 years, we look back on the work of this committee. We know the facts of what happened on January 6th. And anybody out there who believes in the conspiracies today their kids and grandkids will not and, in fact, would be embarrassed that anybody ever did believe it. And I think that's due largely to the work we've been able to do on this committee.
1: After everything you have learned as a member of the committee, on a personal basis, so not speaking for the committee, but just you personally, do you think that Donald Trump has committed a prosecutable crime related to January 6 and the the attempt to overturn the election?
11: Look, I I have to caveat it with that I'm not a Justice Department official. They have different levels of standards. I think he's guilty of a crime. I mean, look, he knew what he did. We've made that clear. He knew what was happening prior to January 6th. He pressured the Justice Department officials to say, hey, just say the election was stolen and leave the rest to me and the Republican All I need you is put the stamp of approval on it. And then you look at the 187 minutes where he sat in his office, not indecisive. I think indecisive would be you know, probably complimentary to him. He was actively resisting pressure from his family and from his staff to stop that from happening. And when he finally saw that law enforcement had turned the tide and that the occupation wasn't going to to succeed, only then did he tepidly come out. I think he is absolutely uh, guilty. If he is not guilty of some kind of a crime, I mean, what we've basically said is presidents are above the law and they can do everything short of a coup as long as it doesn't succeed.
1: Your chairman, Democrat Benny Thompson, said that in addition to criminal referrals, uh, there could be other categories of referrals, such as referrals to the House Ethics Committee for ethics violations. Um, CNN has reported that Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, for example, wanted the federal government to, quote, seize, uh, to, quote, preserve voting machines. He wanted them seized. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene told Trump she wanted, uh, she told um, Mark Meadows that President Trump should Uh, impose martial law, which she misspelled. Uh, Congressman uh, Norman, uh, also martial law, which he also misspelled. Are these the kinds of people that might be getting ethics committee referrals?
11: I mean, certainly if they resisted a subpoena, that's the kind of things we're going to consider. Look, we know we're coming to the end of the term here. Republicans are going to be in the majority. Um, But I think it is important for us to make the standard, which is like, look, you're, you're in a body here, an investigative body at this point, and we're asking for information from you, and you didn't obey it, you didn't, requ- you didn't follow through on that, now a lot of these people that you just named will be leading investigations themselves and wondering why people won't react to subpoenas. Uh, it's a power we have that's important. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to pursue much deeper because of the end of the term. Um, but I do think, the again, the Justice Department's probably looking at what they need to look at, and you know, I wouldn't feel too comfortable if I was somebody calling for martial law, a United States congressman calling for martial law.
1: Republican Congressman uh, Adam Kinzinger, Illinois, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You bet, Jake.
11: Particularly dangerous situation. That warning
1: today with more tornadoes possible in the south as other parts of the United States brace for snow and even a nor'easter. Stay with us. In our national lead, you're looking right now at what used to be a mobile home park in Union Parish, Louisiana, It was obliterated by a tornado that swept through overnight, injuring at least 20 people. About 100 miles from that scene, at least two people, a mother and son, were found dead. This, as the same storm system is hitting the central plains of the United States, leaving behind a deluge of ice and snow. As CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam reports for us now, the severe weather threat is far from over.
12: A tornado over New Iberia, Louisiana, caught on camera this morning. Just one of a string of over a dozen tornadoes in the past 24 hours, wreaking havoc across the deep south. We had quite a few homes damaged and destroyed. We had approximately 20 to 25 known injuries uh, from uh, uh, minor to uh, we have to, a couple of people in critical condition. Look at
13: the top of my house, y'all. House just gone.
12: Overnight in Farmerville, not far from the Arkansas state line.
11: We had found several uh, mobile homes that had been uh, thrown out into the nearby woods. Multiple apartments uh, damaged, multiple vehicles, and uh, a whole trailer park has been pretty much demolished. Beth Tabor survived
12: by sheltering in a bathtub, covering her roommate and her roommate's baby with her own body.
8: It sounds just like they say it's a freight train. It was pretty bad just hearing all the Everything's flying around, and you can't do anything about it.
12: To the southwest, families in Keithville scrambling for safety.
14: We got in the shower, like I said, and then all of a sudden, by the time we got hunkered down here, it was gone. The roof was gone.
12: The storm being blamed in at least two deaths. According to the sheriff in Caddo Parish, a mother and child were killed. In Four Forks, mobile homes destroyed, belongings strewn throughout the neighborhood, trees uprooted, and first responders helping guide residents out to safety from their crumpled homes. Just hours earlier, parts of Texas taking a beating. In Parker, a tornado tore apart roofs, leaving metal siding hanging in trees.
0: I literally opened the door to go and look outside,
12: and I noticed a tornado was literally passing right next to us. And in Oklahoma, too where residents survey the damage left in the storm's path. With the storm system on the move, severe weather warnings have been issued across the Deep South. Government offices and schools closed in Mississippi, with over 14 million people under a tornado or severe weather threat. Meanwhile, out across the plain, it's a deluge of snow and ice. In Wyoming, a whiteout. In South Dakota, most state offices are closed. And in parts of Minnesota, blizzard warnings are in effect as this massive front pushes eastward. Jake, I'm standing on what used to be the foundation of a mobile home that was thrown over a football field's length behind me in the forest. Just incredible to see the destruction and the horrific scenes that were left behind from this devastating tornado.
1: Back to you. Derek Van Dam in Farmerville, Louisiana, for us. Thank you so much, Derek. Uh, tracking all the severe weather for us as CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, where's the biggest tornado threat right now?
15: The biggest tornado threat right now is southeast Louisiana into southern Mississippi, A lot of these storms are continuing to push to the east. We have this tornado watch in effect uh, for the next several hours. All of these hot pink boxes, these are active tornado warnings, meaning there could be a tornado in progress. And look at this one. I want to zoom down in particular. This one is just to the southwest of New Orleans. If this storm holds together, this could potentially bring a tornado into the New Orleans area. And so very dangerous situation here. If you are in the New Orleans area, you've got to get to your safe spot Right away. Here are all the tornado reports that we've seen, and this number is growing. We saw tornadoes beginning yesterday, continuing today, and we could see them into tomorrow. So as these storms go forward to the east, you can see stretching all the way from the Florida Panhandle and then all the way through Atlanta through Wednesday. And then this will push through off the eastern seaboard by the time we get into Thursday, uh, and then eventually head into the northeast, bringing the potential for snow and ice to that region. Still blizzard conditions going on or the potential thereof, Jake, across the northern uh, section of this. This has been a huge storm and still ongoing.
1: All right, Jennifer Gray in the CNN Weather Center. Thank you so much. Ukraine's air defenses are on alert once again as a Russian drone attack targets the capital city. We're going to go live to Kiev next. Stay with us. topping our world lead now two waves of iranian made drones launched by putin's army rained down on kyiv today but ukraine's air defenses seem to be working president volodymyr zelensky says 13 of those russian drones were shot down one of them had the ominous message scribbled across it quote for razan for razan rather razan that's an apparent reference to an alleged ukrainian attack last week deep inside russian territory On the Razan base, CNN's Will Ripley is in Kyiv, where earlier today, a Russian strike blew up a children's
14: soccer field. A terrifying way to wake up in Kyiv. The chilling buzz of another drone attack on the Ukrainian capital, caught on camera. The rumble was like from a moped. That was the sound it made, says Svetlana. It fell behind the houses, and then there was a strong roar, an explosion. Some buildings left on fire, hit by remains of the destroyed Iranian-made Shaheds as they fell. Some landed near a local soccer field. Did you hear the explosion?
16: Yes, of course. We all wake up. I was bombed here, first part. And the
14: first, second one part, near the entrance on the training base, and the third one near the forest. So a few he... hours later, the consequences could have been much worse. And you have kids playing soccer here? No, it's 6 o'clock for happy now, but... Uh... But they would have been here had it happened later.
16: Yeah, later, yes, because we have a tournament here. It's...
14: Authorities say Russia launched the drones towards Kiev on Wednesday, aiming them at the already battered power grid, to sow fear and chaos, and potentially plunge millions into the dark and cold. This time, all the drones were shot down. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says... The terrorists started this morning with 13 Shaheds. According to preliminary information, all 13 were shot down by Ukraine's air defense systems. Well done, he says. I'm proud. Ukrainian defenses less successful in Kherson. Authorities say multiple Russian rockets hit this administrative building in the heart of the southern Ukrainian city. Authorities say nobody was hurt. Inside, the damage severe. Entire sections destroyed. Ukraine says attacks like this, and the one in Kyiv, aimed at wearing down the Ukrainian people, trying to break their spirits, reduce support for resistance against Russia. But here in Kyiv, people refuse to give in. You are brave people. Yeah, children, I, I see
16: parents, that. yeah, women, old men, it doesn't matter that they're so brave.
14: Bravery on and off the battlefield. This is the first attack in a number of weeks here in central Kiev, where you get so used to the sound of air raid sirens, you could pretty much fall asleep to them. Uh, but a lot of people around here in this particular area near our location woke up to the sound of explosions this morning, which was startling even those who have lived through more than nine months of this war. The Kremlin is responding to CNN's uh, reporting that Patriot missile systems will be arriving in Ukraine uh, likely in the coming weeks uh, after uh, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon was first to report that story. They are saying that these Patriot systems would be a legitimate target for the Kremlin, even as the Kremlin continues striking, Jake, so many illegitimate civilian targets, civilian infrastructure, and attacks that are deliberately designed to inflict suffering on millions of people as temperatures continue plunging here every single day. Will Ripley and Keith, thank you so much. And our health lead today, the widow
1: of American soccer journalist Grant Wall says her husband died of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Wall suddenly collapsed last week while covering the World Cup in Qatar, his wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, spoke to Gail King earlier today on CBS.
17: It's just one of these things that had been likely brewing for years. Um, and for whatever reason, it happened at this point in time.
1: Gounder added in a statement that no amount of CPR or shocks would have saved him. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, help us understand how this happened. Is this common, especially for somebody who was only 49 years old?
18: No, it, it, it's not common at all. Uh, really, at any age, but if it is, uh, it happens in people over the age of 65 more commonly. But this this is rare, uh, but unfortunately catastrophic, Jake, when it does happen. And as Dr. Gounder, Celine was sort of talking about, it, it, it was not there was no way that he probably knew that this was happening. Uh, he may have had this for some time, was having these symptoms of cough and thought he had bronchitis. But let me show you what was actually going on now, based on what Celine was describing. The heart, and then the thing in the middle there is the aorta. On the left is normal. Uh, you see the aorta there. On the right, you can see it's sort of ballooned out right as it sort of comes out of the heart. That's the first part of the aorta. And when it balloons out like that, Jake, it, it can become very weak. And this is the biggest blood vessel in the body. It becomes weak. It can rupture, meaning all of a sudden there's a lot of bleeding that happens in the chest cavity and that's what likely happened to him, it sounds like, from what she was describing. Again, to your question, rare. I think in 2019, last year, we have data. There was around 9,300 people who, who died of this, 9,900 people, excuse me, mostly among men. There's things like smoking that increase risk for certain types of aneurysms. But again, there's probably no way that he, he would have known this. Even with family history, it's unlikely to sort of be passed on generation to generation.
2: Hmm.
1: All right. Interesting. Tragic, though. Um, Meanwhile, you're also out with this new essay, two years to the day since the first COVID vaccines in the U.S., and you're stressing the need for them even today.
18: Yeah, look, one of the headlines that I think a lot of people are reading is, you know, more people who are vaccinated are dying of COVID versus unvaccinated. There was a study that came out that you covered on your program saying how many lives have been saved over time. But this is often the headline they see. Okay, so 13,000 deaths occurred in September. How many were vaccinated? 7,800. These are actual numbers. 5,200 unvaccinated. But what you got to do when you look at these numbers, and this is what I wanted to write the essay about, is compare them by the right denominator. There's a lot more vaccinated people, so it's not surprising that more of the deaths will be in vaccinated people. If you look at the rate, it's 38 deaths per million among the vaccinated, 95 deaths per 1 million. This is called base rate fallacy. It's something that comes up in statistics quite a bit, but this is the sort of numbers you got to pay attention to. Also quickly, Jake, Simpson's paradox, I'm delighted that I can talk about this on your show, but it's another statistical term, but basically says, if you are older, you are more likely to die from COVID-19. We know that. If you're older, you're more likely to be vaccinated against COVID-19. They were the most vaccinated group. But what it does not mean is that vaccination is more likely to lead to death. So these are, these are the statistical points I wanted to make, Jake.
1: All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Him. Coming thank up, you. TikTok crackdown, the push to scrap its teen rating, plus whether your data can still be accessed even if you delete the popular app. Stay with us. Our politics lead now, powerful testimony today from a group who survived the massacre inside an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. A man opened fire in Club Q last month, as you might recall, killing five innocent people. Twenty-two others were injured. Today, survivors of that shooting went to Capitol Hill, and many of them specifically blamed conservative, anti-LGBTQ voices, including elected officials, for the deadly attack. To the politicians
19: and activists who accuse LGBTQ people of grooming children and being abusers, shame on you.
11: We are being slaughtered and dehumanized across this country in communities you took oaths to protect.
3: The hateful rhetoric you've heard from elected leaders in the, is the direct cause of the horrific shooting at Club Q.
1: Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu survivors called on lawmakers to take action and protect lives of LGBTQ individuals. Did that get any response from Republicans in the room to hear the testimony?
16: Yeah, there was a Republican in the room and that during the hearing, James Comer, who is poised to become the next chairman of this committee. He said that while Republicans condemn this horrific attack, he criticized Democrats for holding this hearing. In fact, saying that Democrats are using today's hearing to, quote, blame Republicans for this horrendous crime. He went on to say this is an effort to try to blame Republicans for what he contended were Democrats soft on crime policies. Democrats. They said this was a hearing that was designed to show that these attacks against LGBTQ individuals are not isolated and that what happened at Club Q is a part of a larger systemic problem in American society. And that is what James Law, who survived that attack, told lawmakers that the violent rhetoric that he is hearing across media platforms needs to stop.
3: Hate rhetoric from politicians, religious leaders and media outlets is at the root of the attacks like at Club Q, and it needs to stop now. Rhetoric that makes people less than for being different. Rhetoric that threatens to silence what sports we can play, what bathrooms we can use, how we define our family and who I can marry. We need elected leaders to demonstrate language that reflects love and understanding, not hate and fear.
16: The witnesses also, Jake, called for action on guns specifically to ban semi-automatic rifles at this attack. During this attack, the killer used an AR-15 style weapon. They called for a ban on those weapons. But in this Congress, that will simply not happen. Their votes aren't there and the votes won't be there in the next Congress as well.
1: you're on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Let's turn to our tech lead now. The Chinese owned app TikTok saw a meteoric rise in popularity during the pandemic with nearly 100 million U.S. users in 2020. But now the governors in eight states, seven in just the last two weeks, are banning the app on government devices, citing data privacy concerns. On Tuesday, more than a dozen Republican attorneys general called, called on Apple and Google to remove the label in the App Store that deems TikTok teen appropriate. Let's bring in CNN tech reporter Brian Funk. Brian, uh, even some senators are sounding the alarm. Yeah,
19: that's right, Jake. Uh, You have some lawmakers who are raising concerns about the potential for TikTok's U.S. user data to wind up in the hands of the Chinese government. And uh, one of the senators who's introduced a bill to ban TikTok in the United States, Senator Marco Rubio, uh, explained his rationale for introducing the bill this way. Let's have a listen.
3: I want to ban TikTok for a very simple reason they allow the Chinese Communist Party to gain access to all of the private data on any device in America that's using TikTok. That's our kids, that's phones connected to our kids' phones, and that's a national security threat.
19: And the same day that that bill was introduced, as you said, there were 15 attorneys general writing letters to Apple and Google calling on them to stop listing TikTok as teen-appropriate over concerns of mature content on those apps, things like uh, you know, eating disorder content or uh, content promoting alcoholism and stuff like that. Uh, why now, of course? Uh, you know, there's been this ongoing debate, this, this discussion between TikTok and the U.S. government about whether or not TikTok can continue to operate in the United States. Uh, the federal government hasn't, you know, reached a resolution in that negotiations. And according to Senator Rubio, that's one of the reasons why he's introducing the bill.
1: Is it enough to delete TikTok, delete the app from your phone, if you're concerned about your data privacy, or do you have to take further steps, maybe even get a new phone, maybe even launch a whole new, I mean, there's the, the, there's the cloud and everything else.
19: Yeah, well, Jake, you know, anytime you use a, a social media app or any kind of digital service, you are putting information into the hands of a third party, and uh, that involves a little bit of a loss of some control. So I would say, you know, if you're concerned about your data privacy, you might want to rethink how you engage with all digital platforms, not just TikTok, not just social media, but all digital platforms that you may use in your daily life.
1: All right, Brian Funk, thanks so much. Appreciate it. One week and counting until a Trump-era border policy expires. Coming up next, the struggle to keep up with the migrant surge before that deadline and the push to get the policy extended. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new information about the violent attack on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. Who else the alleged attacker wanted to target, including a beloved Oscar-winning actor? Plus, how the leading architect of Trump's anti-immigration policies has turned to targeting black farmers and female restaurant owners. And leading this hour, the clock is ticking on a looming crisis along the U.S.-Mexico border. A bipartisan group of lawmakers have sent a letter to the Biden administration demanding that the administration extend the Trump-era Title 42 border policy. That policy that ends next week, essentially uses the COVID crisis to allow asylum-seeking migrants to be expelled from the United States. Since this weekend, thousands of migrants have crossed in the El Paso, Texas region. Right now, shelters are completely full there and they are forced to turn away migrants. CNN's Ed Lavandera is near the border in El Paso, Texas, where he visited a shelter today that is struggling to keep up with the demand of the influx of migrants. We
19: can get the women over to the rescue mission.
7: It's a frigid El Paso night, and John Martin is coordinating an outreach team trying to figure out where newly arrived migrants have been released on the city's downtown streets.
19: They're working with the new arrivals that came in
7: just within the past hour. So there's a lot of confusion right now. To a great extent, I'll probably get myself into trouble. I think confusion is an understatement. Martin helps run a homeless shelter program in El Paso. Three of its shelters are open to migrants. This family welcome center can fit about 80 people, but in recent days, they've taken in as many as 125 per night. The concern that we have is at some
19: point, you just simply run out of physical space. And we don't want to be in a position to say no, but I think the reality is very close.
7: In recent days, the El Paso area has seen a major wave of migrants crossing into the United States. The average number of migrants arriving here in El Paso has been about 2,500 per day. And because of that, many people here, city leaders in El Paso, are concerned about what this could look like if Title 42 is lifted next week. The public health policy known as Title 42, which was used during the pandemic to remove some 2.5 million migrants from the U.S., is set to expire next week. But for many migrants, the talk of Title 42 isn't on their minds. Joel and Reina Velasquez left Nicaragua six weeks ago with their nine-year-old girl. ¿Ustedes conocen you know this rule of Title 42? No. He said they came, they were unaware of Title 42 and that Title 42 could be lifted. So they really just want to come here to work for a couple of years and go back home to Nicaragua. The family is headed to Georgia to await immigration court proceedings. But El Paso leaders say the humanitarian safety net that has long existed in this border city is stretched too thin already. We need people to step up, we need to stop pointing fingers, we need to work together, we need to collaborate and we need to to make sure that we keep folks that are passing through our neighborhoods safe while also keeping our communities safe as well. And Jake, this is what is starting to unfold and become a bigger problem here in the downtown streets of El Paso. Uh, These are people who have been released from Border Patrol custody, they have their immigration papers. They are waiting transportation out of El Paso. Many of them are also waiting for other family members to get out of detention as well. But in the meantime, they are forced to sit and wait here on another frigid night. And what we are seeing, Jake, is a number of people who have been coming here. This is completely uncoordinated at this point. Volunteers and uh, people who are bringing clothing, food as these people are very likely to spend the night here on these streets just outside one of the bus stations in downtown El Paso tonight. Jake.
1: All right, Ed Lavender in El Paso, Texas, thank you so much. As the Biden administration faces the looming expiration of Title 42, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, with concerns that the administration might not be prepared for the coming influx of migrants. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me now live. Priscilla, what are you learning about that phone call?
6: Well, it seems like the ones that you just saw in El Paso that have been generating concern within the administration and among Democrats, including senior Democrat Chuck Schumer, who called Ron Klain to share exactly that, concerns about the termination of this authority, which is happening because of a court order, and also what happens in the coming days and weeks. It really provides a window into this complex policy and political moment that is happening for the administration, and it's not the only one. We have been told that lawmakers have been calling administration officials on a frequent basis concerned about what is to come just simply by looking at El Paso, where hundreds have already lined up in just that one section of the border. Now, DHS officials tell me that they're considering temporary facilities on the border, scaling up air and ground transportation, and increasing referrals of prosecutions for people who cross repeatedly. But ultimately, uh, it's a big challenge for the administration ahead.
1: And President Biden is facing increasing calls, bipartisan calls, to visit the border itself to see this humanitarian crisis is there any consideration of a trip by the White House?
6: The White House won't say, and they ultimately pivot back to the administration focusing on this moment and the preparations right now. But the common theme with the administration, both at the White House and the Department of Homeland Security, is that they need congressional action. They need funding, and they also need those statutes to be reformed.
1: Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez from Texas. His district stretches 800 miles along the U.S.-Mexico border more than that of any other congressional district. So Congressman, thanks for joining us. You just came back from a trip to your district. What did you see and hear there reflective of this crisis?
20: Yeah, Jay, thank you you for having me on. You know, the city of El Paso is a beautiful and compassionate city. But what we're seeing is completely overrun. You know, you have hundreds of migrants sleeping in the streets in near-freezing weather. It's 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 sad all the way around. You have border patrol agents that are stretched beyond beyond uh, uh, their breaking point. To date, we've had 14 border patrol agents commit suicide. There is a rising mental health issue within that agency. Uh, but it can't just be talk. You know, uh, myself, Representative Cuellar, Senator Cornyn, Republican from Texas, and and Democrat Manchin put together this letter. Urging the, the Biden administration to uh, to keep Title 42 in place until another plan is in place that it, that, it, that can correct this issue, I worry the, the worst isn't here yet. I'm hearing from from folks on the ground that there are 50,000 migrants waiting to cross the border.
1: So this letter uh, calling on the Biden administration to extend Title 42, which would allow border patrol agents to continue to quickly expel migrants who cross the border using COVID uh, as their as their justification. It's a court ruling that's what's causing Title 42 to expire, not the Biden administration. What could
20: President Biden do? He could, he could certainly use every avenue in his power to make sure that uh, he encourages Title 42 to stay around. That's one. Another one is just visit and see it for yourself. When you visit the border, you cannot unsee what is there. And, and I've tried at work, and I will continue to work, in a bipartisan manner. Look, I, I like a sternly written letter as much as the next person, but it takes well more than that. You know, just uh, just an hour ago, myself and Democrat Congressman Henry Cuellar, we hosted uh, the CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner, to have a discussion, to go, what is the plan? What do you need from Congress in order to get through this? I I fear the worst is, is yet to come, and uh, we're just seeing... The tip of the iceberg. This is this is going to be a problem for a for a long time. We're going right into the holidays.
1: So you you mentioned that 14 border patrol agents have died by suicide this year alone. Uh, This comes uh, in the context of of agents struggling with staffing shortages, uh, the increasing number of migrants crossing the border. um, Some I'm sure some horrific scenes uh, because of uh, the dangers of the of the journey as well as coyotes. Um, you're leading this bipartisan, bipartisan coalition to fight to get more funding to address these mental health concerns among agents. Spe- specifically, what do agents need from Congress?
20: Yes, I, I introduced the TAPS Act in order to help a bipartisan piece of legislation that helps address this. I served 20 years in the military, and it reminds me a lot of the height of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. I spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan, where there was a, all these suicides that were happening within DOD. Well, DOD put together a task force that addressed some of this. I worked with my, my good friend, Henry Cuellar, on the Democratic side. We got $23 million in there for mental health, but that's just a drop in the bucket. A large part of this is stigma. You know, mental health is creeping in all parts of our society. Border patrol agents are no different. They're just having to deal with these horrific incidents. Not to mention many of the people coming over illegally, I get it. They're seeking a better life for them. But you're having to pull babies out of the water and just deal all kinds of different issues that is certainly impacting our Border Patrol agents. This is an area that shouldn't be partisan. We should come together and make sure that our our, uh, Border Patrol agents and custom officials are safe.
1: Well, speaking of coming together, I mean, the Biden administration is stressing that the only long term solution to the border crisis is going to come from congressional action. Uh, It's going to come from Democrats and Republicans sitting down and compromising. It's been decades since Congress has passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill since Ronald Reagan, uh, <laughs> under both Democrats and Republicans in control of Congress and the, the the White House, don't you, not you personally, but doesn't Congress shoulder some of the blame here? And, and what's the plan to sit down and actually have a bill that changes some of these laws uh, so there's less of an incentive for these individuals to make this dangerous journey, provides more border security, provides a path to some sort of legal status for dreamers who came here through no fault of their own, et cetera, et cetera. The the deal's right there. Is there the will of Democrats and Republicans, especially, I should say, Republicans, to compromise on this stuff?
20: Look, Jake, you're exactly right. While the administration has a a, uh, a role to play in this and they should certainly be uh, be part and in, in, uh, of this uh, Congress has a role to play and Congress needs to lead I am certain me I am, I'm committed to immigration reform I, I, I honestly recently spoke with Senator cinema as uh, I know she has a plan we started to work through, through through some things but I will tell you Jake it is very difficult for me to talk about immigration reform when I've got 50,000 migrants waiting on the other side of the border to come through to me immigration reform starts with border security Security. But these are the conversations we should be having in a bipartisan, constructive manner. You know, that, it, sadly, that's difficult to do. I've been pushing for the administration to help lead in that, help encouraging that. A, a trip to the border would certainly help that. I hosted President Biden after the Uvalde shooting. At that meeting, I asked him, look, Mr. President, this isn't the time or place, but I would love to have a discussion with you either in, at the White House or at the border to continue the dialogue and how we fix this.
1: All right, Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Good to see you again. Thank you, Jake. Investigators lay out their case against the accused Paul Pelosi attacker. They're using the 911 call, police body cam footage, and even showing the hammer. That's ahead. In our world lead, Iran is out of the United Nations Women's Rights Council. Twenty-nine member states voted to remove Iran today for enforcing policies that do the exact opposite of empowering or protecting even women and girls in that country. The move comes after months of protests in Iran sparked by the death, some say murder, of 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman Masa Jina Amini, who died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. She was detained for showing just a little bit of her hair out of her hijab. Iran condemned the removal from the Women's Rights Council. They called it an illegal request. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz joins us now live. Salma, beyond the the public shaming, will this actually change anything in Iran, do you think?
17: Look, this is absolutely not going to make a major impact on the ground. It is, of course, Jake, largely symbolic. But it is the largest symbolic gesture we have seen from the United Nations so far since this popular uprising began. And it is an unprecedented move, a historic move, to kick a country off of a United Nations body like this. And the message here from the United States to those protesters on the ground, from the U.S. and its allies, is We hear you, we are listening with you, we have your back, and we stand alongside you in your fight. And that message of solidarity is extremely important right now, Jake, almost three months into these protesters fighting their government on the streets. And I think the other win here, the other victory here, of course, it's a victory for President Biden's administration that had been campaigning for this, but it's also a victory for Iran's expat community, for those abroad who you know have been extremely vocal extremely active. Now they can say we have made an impact for our family and friends back home who have been suffering under this crackdown, Jake.
1: And and meanwhile, speaking of suffering, these executions of detained Iranian protesters continues. One Iranian parliament member said today that protesters should be executed within five to 10 days after their arrest.
17: What haunting comments to hear those. And I have to point out, this is a prominent member of parliament, Mustafa Mursalim. He was a former presidential candidate today saying that he believes the time between arrest to execution for what he called our rioters. But of course, we know our protesters. He believed that time period was too long and he wanted to see people executed in a matter of five to ten days How chilling, Jake. And that's exactly the intention behind this statement, to make protesters believe that if they are caught by the government, if they are arrested by the authorities, they could be hung in just five days. In fact, one rights group says, don't even think of these as courts. They're really lynching committees, Jake.
1: Yeah. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much for that report. New details revealed in the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, as the police officer who witnessed the attack shows the hammer... In court. And we're back with our national lead. We are learning new details about the man accused of attacking Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer as he makes another court appearance today. Prosecutors played audio of Paul Pelosi's 911 call and body camera video from one of the officers who responded to the scene. CNN's Josh Campbell is following this trial for us. And Josh, prosecutors also revealed some of the other potential victims that the suspect was allegedly planning to target.
21: That's right. And that alleged target list also included Hunter Biden, of course, the son of President Joe Biden, as well as California Governor Gavin Newsom and actor Tom Hanks. And speaking of Hunter Biden, the suspect in this case allegedly told police that he wanted to kidnap Hunter Biden to discuss, quote, all the corruption in Washington. Now, this occurred, this new information in this hearing on state charges. This suspect, 42-year-old David Pap, stands accused of assaulting Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He faces charges of attempted murder as well as assault. He has pleaded not guilty to those charges. And in court today, we learned that one of the officers who interviewed the suspect said that the suspect confessed to all of this. And so, again, a lot of new details about what this suspect was allegedly planning. And of course, Jake, when you look at the list of these targets, uh, there's no question that this appears to be a politically motivated attack. The suspect allegedly also talked to police about Hillary Clinton, of course, the former Secretary of State, telling authorities that the evil in Washington, quote, originates with Hillary Clinton. And of course, this is what uh, we've heard from law enforcement sources uh, throughout the last uh, past few years, that they're concerned about that there are people out there who are on the receiving end of so much of this vitriol, so many of these conspiracy theories. They are concerned that they could be ticking time bombs, just waiting uh, to act on those beliefs with violence, as we saw in the case with Nancy Pelosi. And finally, it's worth pointing out that people might say, well, look at this target list. This is aspirational. The Bidens and the Clintons are protected by the Secret Service. Of course, Governor uh, California's Governor Gavin Newsom, he has a security detail from the California Highway Patrol. But look no further than that Pelosi attack itself. The House Speaker was not there. She was out of town. But it was her husband who, of course, was so severely injured. He could have been killed. This is something that uh, law enforcement, FBI sources tell me that they continue to be concerned about, that there are more people out there like this on the receiving end of this vitriol who could pose a threat to the public and elected officials and their families, Jake.
1: And Josh, I'm not sure if this came out in court, but I, I, I look at that list and I hear the name Tom Hanks. I know Tom Hanks is smeared regularly by the deranged lunatics who push the QAnon theory with all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories. Is that
21: why he was on this list? So in court today, what police did was just recite what the suspect told them. And they didn't mention the actual uh, reasoning behind that. At least they didn't lay out an evidence today. But we went back and looked at the suspect's social media footprint. It is littered with far right and QAnon type conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, about COVID vaccines, about all of the, the who's who list of targets of people that adhere to QAnon and a lot of the far right conspiracy theories. And I think that's why we see that same name here as well. Uh, People like Tom Hanks, people like Hunter Biden, who, of course, is he himself has been targeted by people in government, people outside of government who believe a lot of this.
1: All right, Josh Campbell. uh, Thanks. Turning to our politics lead. Top congressional negotiators have announced a bipartisan framework agreement to prevent a government shutdown this Friday. Many Republicans say they are not happy with it.
16: Are you disappointed that Senator McCall, the Pierce have signed off on this?
1: Well, we'll see where we land on it. I still need to see a final. i not happy the process. I'm not sure how involved Kevin McCarthy is. He's said publicly that he wants this to, he wants a medium-term continuing resolution so the Republican House can negotiate, which is the position I think is the right one. But who knows? Nobody knows what's in the agreement. We do this every year. And, um, you know, it's a terrible way to do business. I mean, he's not wrong. It is a terrible way to do business. Uh, Let's talk about this. And, Abby, a a lot still needs to be hammered out in the framework deal. It's not just Republicans uh, voicing opposition. Senator Bernie Sanders says he's going to be a no because of the increase in Pentagon spending. How do you think it's going to play out? You think?
6: Well, first of all, uh, they have no one to blame but themselves right. for the position that they're in. They could have done this months ago, and they do do this every year. Uh, but because they do it every year, it's kind of a well-worn pattern. You got Republicans complaining that it's too quick; they can't read the bill, they don't have time. A Democrats complaining that the spending levels, especially for defense, like Senator Bernie Sanders is saying, are too high. And at the end of the day. Uh, because Congress is controlled at the moment by Democrats, a majority of Democrats, and a handful of Republicans will join, more than a handful, but but some Republicans will join in, and they will ultimately vote for this. Why? Because no one, and I mean no one, wants to deal with this in January or in February because it Even is Even though far, McCarthy
1: is saying he wants to, you don't is, buy it?
6: McCar- it's very important <laughs> for Kevin McCarthy to say that right now as to incentivize everyone to get it done in December.
1: That's interesting. And, and Carlos, uh, right now... Uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy likely going to be the next speaker. It seems to be on a collision course with Senate Republican leader uh, Mitch McConnell over this spending deal. Take a look.
4: We're 28 days away from Republicans having the gavel. We would be stronger in every negotiation. So any Republican that's out there trying to work with them is wrong.
15: So that Why you wait the Does that stronger? include McConnell? Yes.
4: Why would you want to work on anything if we have the gavel inside Congress? You just we want have the a Yes. Just. Wait till we're in charge.
1: A lot of senators say that McConnell was blindsided by that. What do you make of it all? Probably,
8: but differences between the House and the Senate have been going on for more than 220 years. Uh, these are two individuals. I know it's tempting to think that all Republicans in the United States Congress are the same, but they're not. They have different incentives, right? One, Mitch McConnell was just elected, reelected, leader of the Republicans in the Senate. He has job security for the next two years. The other one hasn't yet been elected speaker. Right. So he's doing what he needs to be doing to shore up his base and to get the job that he wants. What do you think? I, I think Carlos is right. That, that McConnell has got command of his party. And, and you know, there are some dissenters, the, the so-called Breakfast Club and Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, and they don't amount to anything. ...that stops McConnell. McCarthy certainly doesn't have command. I mean, He didn't even have the support of his, uh, enough people to become Speaker just yet. So he's, he's playing politics with it, but this is a, a harbinger of what's to come. Mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy may not even become Speaker, but if he does, I promise you he'll be a failed Speaker. Because if he can't even get this done, uh, then he won't be able to get anything
1: done. And the, uh, a group of moderate House Republicans met with Kevin McCarthy today. They are on board. They want him to be uh, Speaker... Um, a source tells CNN that they warned him if he cuts a deal with these hardliners, the MAGA uh, folks, on the so-called motion to vacate, which sounds stupid and boring, but is actually very important and consequential. It will allow uh, anyone at any time to to make a motion to, to remove the Speaker of the House. Um, that if, if he includes that, they're not going to, the moderate Republicans are not going to include, uh, are not going to support the rules package. Um, but it's possible that... You know, Kevin McCarthy needs this in order to become speaker.
5: That's right. And if he cuts this deal, essentially uh, the far right of his party, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are going to own his speakership, right? They essentially can say, listen, if you don't do what we want you to do uh, and sort of essentially brand the House Republican uh, caucus in their uh, model, then they can, you know, push him out of the job. We saw that happen with John Boehner. Uh, that's why he was run out of town because of the far right of his party. So if you're a moderate Republican, you are worried you're going to be up in two years and you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene possibly pulling the strings uh, if Kevin McCarthy ends up being speaker. We'll see the big vote is January 3rd, but this is his dream job. But it sounds like it could be a nightmare if he actually ends up being speaker.
1: So we were just talking uh, about violent and dangerous rhetoric when it comes to the attack on Paul Pelosi Uh, There was a hearing today in the House. I believe it was in the House Oversight Committee. Um, It was yesterday, I'm told, actually. Um, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, um, had an interesting moment with Harvard Law instructor and LGBTQ rights activist Alejandra Caraballo over hypocrisy with the left constantly calling out violent rhetoric on the right, but not policing their own. Take a look.
17: Do you believe that rhetoric targeting
20: officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy? Yes. One of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. And I'll quote directly from the tweet. The six justices who overturned Roe should never no peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. I know something about being accosted. The night of January 5th, I was physically accosted on the streets of D.C. in Navy Yard by a constituent of mine. Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to accost
15: a branch of government, the Supreme Court? I don't believe that's a correct uh, characterization of my statement.
1: Uh, That's just a truncated version of the clip, but you get the general gist. I mean, she did directly use the word accost and say that they should never know peace again. The six justices. Um, You've been one that's been willing to criticize left and right, even though you're clearly a Democrat. Uh, What do you make of it all?
8: When people protested in front of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's home, I tweeted, this is stupid, dangerous and politically counterproductive. And uh, God help us. I was right. The police there was, leader, a, there a, was a, somebody assassin. who wanted to take his life. Right. Yeah. So, so, so it, it, it's always wrong, I think, to, to harass people personally or at their home. Having said that, this is not an equal and opposite. I think Congresswoman Mace makes, makes a good point, but she overstates it in that it's not equal and opposite. I do call it on both sides a try anyway. But uh, the uh, Anti-Defamation League took a look at 450 political murders over the last decade. Seventy five percent of them were committed by the far right by the far left. So there is a problem on the left, but it is not equal and opposite. The real problem is when the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, stands up on January 6th and says, we need trial by combat. Mm -hmm. And then there's an assault in the Capitol. Not that Rudy caused it, but people have to be more careful about their rhetoric. Carlos? They do have to be more careful, but I think the congresswoman is absolutely right. When you attack, when you threaten to attack somebody on the left, uh, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a threat to democracy. But what you do on the right, nobody says anything about it, right? You were one of the few ones who did, but most liberals, most Democrats are silent on the issue, it's which is wrong.
1: kind of that, they, that the Democrats didn't vet that witness enough. Yeah, to, that's to, actually <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, Anyway, thanks to all for being here. How the leading architect of Trump's anti-immigration policies has been waging a battle in the courts to stop federally funding programs meant to help women and minorities. Stay with us. In our buried lead stories that we feel are not getting enough attention, Stephen Miller one of the leading architects of the Trump administration's brutal family separation border policy, has now made fighting for the rights of white people a priority of a new legal group. Miller even waged a legal war against the Biden administration's efforts to even the field for minority farmers, who have, as a matter of fact, for decades faced institutional discrimination by the U.S. government. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, so far Stephen Miller is winning.
2: We have multiple tools across multiple fronts to ensure that we are preventing terrorist infiltration of our country.
22: Stephen Miller, off in the face of former President Trump's crackdown on immigration, now continuing his conservative crusade, even after leaving his post as a top advisor in the last administration. He spent the past two years as the president of a right-wing organization that pledges it is fighting back against lawless executive actions and the radical left. America First Legal touts itself as the long-awaited answer to the ACLU. And just as the ACLU sued to block many Trump era policies, AFL has filed a litany of lawsuits challenging Biden policies they view as anti white. And just like the ACLU, they are flush with millions of dollars in new donations.
3: When did racism against white people become okay?
22: This is the ad the group ran before the midterms. But fourth generation black farmer John Boyd, who says a lawsuit filed by Miller's group caused him to lose out on thousands in federal aid, argues the group is way. off base.
9: I want to set the record straight. No one is against uh, white farmers in this country.
22: Miller's group sued, saying the farm debt forgiveness program that gave preference to non-white farmers violated civil rights law. Congress eventually put a new program in its place offering funds to all farmers.
9: White farmers were getting debt relief and they were the ones getting all of the debt relief for all of these decades. And it's been blacks and other minorities that clearly haven't been getting debt relief. And that's what this whole measure was about.
22: AFL also challenged a COVID relief fund for restaurants that Miller's team said gave first dibs to women and minorities.
3: Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds.
22: AFL filed both of these lawsuits in the conservative-leaning Northern District of Texas in Fort Worth, though filing in friendly courts is a tactic used by liberal and conservative groups alike. No one from AFL responded to our request for comment, but Miller told The Washington Post that after a never-ending stream of litigation during the Trump years, one of my goals was to try to help and inspire and coordinate a larger legal movement on the conservative side of the spectrum to do the same. AFL isn't just rallying against Biden's policies, but also a broad array of social issues, including transgender rights and affirmative action. They sued Texas A&M for relying on race and gender preferences in hiring, something Texas A&M disputes. Some advocates say Miller's group is taking the idea of reverse discrimination too far.
8: It's the use of grievance politics um, through the rule of law to try to exclude people of color broadly, but in certain pockets, Black people specifically, from areas
22: of opportunity. And Miller's group has a number of other legal actions still pending, and proclamations are on their website that promise more legal action to come. Jake?
1: Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Congressman Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, a member of Democratic Leadership. Uh, Congressman, um, what's your reaction to Stephen Miller's new group, this law firm that fights to block Biden administration programs that are trying to remedy... Racial and gender disparities.
9: Well, thank you very much for having me. Look, I have been saying now for more than a dozen years that I detect throughout the country and in a lot of legislative halls, attempts to turn back the clock. I just finished today a markup in the Veterans Affairs Committee of two African-Americans who came home. After World War II, one of them was, while in uniform, was blinded by a local police officer here in South Carolina. Took his billy stick and punched his eyes out. Denied any kind of assistance from the veterans, uh, the so-called GI Bill. Maddox, up in New York, was admitted to Harvard University was not allowed to get veterans benefits because they did not want to set a precedence. That's what has been going on since the 1940s. And we moved to correct that in this country with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Law of 68. These things were done to correct the traditional discrimination that had place against black folks. Now, we knew. In fact, I used to run the South Carolina Commission for Farm Workers. The veterans, I'm I'm sorry, the Agriculture Department were discriminating against black farmers and all the records show it. The Pickford case is replete with it. And Biden administration moved to correct that. And now they're saying you're being unfair to white people. That is why today there are eight less African-Americans in the South Carolina legislature than there were in the past legislature. Because these laws are now making it fair game to discriminate. So, Miller knows what he's doing. They think they've got enough people on the Supreme Court uh, to back up what they're doing. And so, that's what's going on here. I would hope the media uh, will not allow this uh, to go unchecked. You are the chairman for
1: the House Select Committee on the coronavirus crisis, uh, which held its final hearing today, which is why we booked you. And, And you say the committee's final report lays out that, quote, "...the Trump administration's poor management of relief programs left them particularly vulnerable to waste, fraud, and abuse, and that the previous administration, the Trump administration, prioritized politics over public health, engaging in an unprecedented campaign to undermine federal agencies responsible for protecting Americans' health and lives." Um, how much blame for the poor response to the pandemic do you put on the Trump administration? And how much do you think our country's health agencies were just unprepared uh, as opposed to um, purposefully failing?
9: Well, there's no question but that we were unprepared for this pandemic. And at our hearing today, our final hearing, I ask uh, Dr. Corbett, who, as you know, is an African-American woman who's credited, with having done uh, the lion's share of the work uh, on the Moderna vaccine. And she said to me, there are about 19 other variants out there uh, that we are ill-prepared for. So that's what this committee was all about, trying to identify where we had problems in the system. And so when you get a pandemic and you visit a community that has already been discriminated against, already been uh, ill-prepared uh, health-wise, then it becomes a big, big problem. So it's a combination. I am not say uh, that it was all Trump administration. No. This country has allowed uh, inequality in health care to be a part of it for a long, long time. Inequality in education for a long, long time. These things run rapid But all I'm saying is when that exists and the pandemic comes, then those who are less prepared are more affected.
1: Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up 10 years later, one Sandy Hook survivor says she feels like a failure after every new school shooting. Stay with us. Ten years ago today, the unthinkable. Twenty first graders and the six adults there to protect them were killed by a gunman at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. In a CNN special report, Allison Camerata talked to some of the parents about what it was like trying to find their kids in the hours after the shooting.
13: In the one room, I could see first-graders, you know, sitting down with cross-legs, and and I kept looking at all the faces, and I didn't see any of Dylan's classmates, and I didn't see Dylan. There's an entire class that has not come out of the school
5: yet.
10: Nicole Hockley kept scanning the crowd for her six-year-old son. I remember just,
13: like, looking, staring at each one, and just not understanding why he wasn't there. People were holding signs Uh, with classrooms and and I found someone holding Miss Soto's sign but it wasn't Miss Soto and there were just a couple of kids there including Dylan's reading partner and I walked up and I said where's the rest of the class and I looked down at Dylan's reading partner and she just her eyes were like wide like saucers and she was just staring, and and I thought, oh gosh, this, this isn't good.
10: Scarlett Lewis was also there, searching for her six-year-old son, Jesse. I remember being told repeatedly, if you can't find your child, go into the back room
8: and put his name down on the list. And I'm like, I'm not going to put my child's name down on a list. I'm just going to find him. I tried to go up to the school. They wouldn't let me.
4: It was surreal, it was frightening, it was, I was just, um, it was hard to process. And at that point, the governor brought everybody into a room in the firehouse. And that's, that's where we got the news.
13: He said that if we were still in that room, that our loved ones weren't coming back. The room erupted. It was chaos. There was wailing. There was screaming, yelling. Um, The gentleman who was to my right was on the ground pounding the floor.
4: It was just um, catastrophic beyond recognition.
1: (sighs) Doesn't get any easier to watch. Allison joins us now. And astoundingly, uh, since Sandy Hook there have been more than 210 people killed in nearly 460 school shootings in the United States. How do the families you spoke to, how do they feel that this problem persists?
10: Well, they feel sick about it, like we all do. In fact, when I was interviewing the father there that you just heard, Mark Garden, um, I got a text on my phone that my town's schools were all going into lockdown because there were calls into police of a shooter, it ended up being a false alarm. But for that hour, the PTSD, even for a false alarm, comes flooding back to them. And so you can imagine how they feel when there's a real shooting, like in Uvalde, it's sickening. But I have to tell you, Jake, that much as this is very, very heavy material to dive into tonight, I left (laughs) after every one of these conversations with the parents, Feeling energized because they have this life affirming energy because they never saw dead ends. Even uh, in their grief, they never thought when they lost some sort of legislative battle, they never saw a dead end. They only saw setbacks. And since Sandy Hook, there have been 525 significant gun safety laws passed, mostly at the state level. It's true, um, but they're slowly making a dent in the states that have passed. The laws, like Connecticut, like Florida. And so the parents are still hopeful, and you'll hear that tonight. They're still working. They work day in and day out to try to stop it from happening to any other families.
1: There absolutely has been progress made, and they are absolutely responsible. Um, Serena Arochium uh, was uh, in second grade uh, at Sandy Hook. She survived by hiding in a code area. I want you to take a listen to what she said on CNN this morning about the recent school shootings.
13: It's definitely difficult, especially seeing all these other school shootings and especially after Uvalde, which hit close to home, because it was so similar to Sandy Hook. Um, it really affected me because I, I felt like I failed.
1: It just it hurts me so much because these kids, they haven't failed. They got all those laws passed in Florida. One of them just got elected to Congress. They're having an influence. Um, But tell us some of the ways that the survivors and and the loved ones of the victims are, are trying to prevent school shootings.
10: Well, they are preventing school shootings, actually, Jake. That's one of the incredible things that I learned in producing this documentary, as you'll see tonight. 11 school shootings across the country, this is according to police and school administrators, have been stopped because of the work that these Sandy Hook parents have done. They have gone into schools and trained students and teachers for the warning signs because what they've learned is that 100%, 100% without fail, of school shooters send off warning signs beforehand. And if you can spot them, you can be proactive, and they have actually stopped some school shootings. So you'll hear more about that this evening.
1: I can't wait to watch. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks for doing this report. The CNN special report, Sandy Hook Forever Remembered, airs tonight. 10 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, the National Weather Service confirming a tornado just hit the New Orleans area. That's ahead in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.